If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Jane Austen. She'll be answering our call on December 23rd, 1815, at the age of 39. In less than two years, she will die of Addison's disease as her death slowly and uncomfortably declines until she is bedbound. Yet during this time, she continues to write and rewrite novels that would be published after her death. Before I share this amazing conversation with Jane Austen, I have to confess, whenever my wife is watching one of these pompous English dramas like Pride and Prejudice, I can't help but make fun of it in my worst and most despicable English accent. Yet, after this conversation with Jane Austen, I didn't feel that way anymore because I understood what was happening, and I found myself on Netflix watching Pride and Prejudice and enjoying it. What makes Jane Austen so beloved by 30 million readers is her talent to write what was actually happening behind all the fake gestures and the pomp. She wrote dialogue that was funny and revealing when others would only address what was happening on the surface. Her work shined a light on the unfairness of women living their lives in fear, searching for someone to care for them before they were shuffled aside when the man in their life would either die or go broke. At this time in history, women couldn't own property, and even her profession of writing and selling books was inappropriate for a lady. This is why no one could know that she was the author of books like Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, and Emma. During this conversation, you're going to get to experience how Jane is witty and thoughtful and funny and intelligent and profound all at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and keepers of the keys everywhere, I give you the one-of-a-kind Jane Austen. Hello, is that you, Miss Austen? It is indeed, yes. <laughs> With but, whom am I speaking? Do you remind me. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting in your drawing room having tea. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today because your life and what you've done with it is just so fascinating to me. But before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? Well, I'm most intrigued by this phenomenon. I hope that some of my all-important nothings may be of interest. I'd never have thought of my words being shared all around the world. Although my brothers have traveled extensively, I certainly have not. And I must confess that before you get too excited, I do think I am the most unlearned and uninformed female who ever dared to be an authoress. Well, now, after reading some of your work, I get the impression that you are being humble right now because you have spent quite a bit of time self-educating yourself. And uh, my opinion, when I say you're being humble, it, it feels to me like you have a better understanding of the human condition than most. Do you not feel that way? 
Well, I've certainly had many opportunities for observation. When I was a young girl, my father actually took in boarders of young men who were training for entrance and examinations to Oxford or Cambridge. And so I did absorb a great deal from the tutelage I saw him giving to those gentlemen, although my sister Cassandra and I were not involved in those lessons. But then we were sent away to school together when we were younger, and that enabled us to travel more than we might otherwise have done. We started at a school in Oxford that then moved on to Southampton and then then we were in Reading. And as a young girl, I began to travel and visit my brothers once they went away to school or married or did other things. So I have an opportunity to see a fair amount of life within my small corner of England. Reading your novels and your work in general, it appears to me that if somebody was to read you, they would think that you have traveled throughout the entire world. And although you have traveled some, it hasn't been much outside of England. Is that correct? No, I've never left the country. I've heard stories. My brother Frank, actually, when he was 14, set sail on his first voyage, and that took him all the way to the East Indies, and subsequently he's gone all over to China and India, as has my brother Charles, who even, actually, at one point was at the North American station, and I believe that you may be in that part of the world yourself. <laughs> yeah, indeed, I am. Your two brothers that were in the Navy... What can you tell me about them? Were there some of the stories that they told you from their travels that ended up in some of your books or your writings? Well, I certainly did use the name of their ships. At one point, I do refer to my brother Francis' ship, The Elephant, in Mansfield Park. If you've read it, you may recall. I know that's not one of my novels that's the most popular. And Brother Charles as well, I referred to some of his ships. He also was very kind. He received prize money once from boarding the privateer ship Scipio. And he used it to buy these beautiful gold chains and amber crosses for my sister Cassandra and me. And if you have read Mansfield Park, you may recognize that Fanny Price's seafaring brother William does the same for her in that novel. So certainly things that my brothers have done have made their way into my books. Although I do always insist that I never take characters from real life and transplant them entirely into any of my books. Certainly my life experience does make its way in, as one would expect. Yeah, well, there's no question that they say that a, a writer writes what they know, so there's going to be no way for some of the people that you've met to at least some of their characteristics be in some of the people of your books. And that leads me to the question, I have to imagine people have asked you this before, of the characters that you've written, is there one that you feel is closest to you? Oh, now that's an interesting question. It has been pointed out to me by a few family members that I tend to name the most perfect characters in my novels Jane, thinking of Jane Bennett and Jane Fairfax, but that mm -hmm. is certainly not my intention. I do fear, I must admit, that honestly, pictures of perfection make me sick and wicked. And I certainly could not deal with any very perfect person in my life for very long. Although my sister Cassandra is quite close to perfection, but in a very special way that's not at all cloying. I suppose I don't really think any of my characters are as much like me. People often want me to say that Elizabeth Bennet is a version of myself. But I think, truthfully, she is as delightful a character as ever appeared in print. And I would never say that about myself. In many ways, I think she is much closer to my cousin Eliza, my brother Henry's wife, who has a wonderful sparkling wit and is very bright and sprightly. I should have to think about that. But no, in truth... I do not believe I've really put myself specifically into any of my books. Is there one of the characters that you wish that you were? Ah, now that is an excellent question. And I would not object to being Elizabeth Bennet, I will admit. I also very much admire 
the sense of Eleanor Dashwood. And although I can write about it and see it, I'm afraid I cannot always portray it in my own life. I'm afraid always a little bit of the sensibility of Marianne Dashwood creeps in, although I would also not want to go to the extremes to which she goes. Certainly, as a younger woman, I did share a certain penchant and interest in romantic gothic fiction with Catherine Morland, and I was about her age when I began writing that novel, Northanger Abbey, which at the time I called Susan. Although most provokingly, as Northanger Abbey has not yet been published, I sold the copyright foolishly many years ago to Mr. Benjamin Crosby, who has not yet published the novel, and I can't afford to buy it back from him. But since I did sell him that copyright, someone else has published a novel called Susan, so I have had to change the title that I would use if I were ever to publish that book. I was wondering why you changed the name. That's a big change from Susan to, I always say this, I, was, it's, I say North Anger, but it's, is it North Anger? It depends on who's saying it. In our sort of dialect now, part of the world, it often comes out as North Hanger, actually. So different people pronounce it different ways. But it really was Cassandra who recommended to me that I ought to change it from the name of the heroine to the name of the house. Also, as that has much more of an echo of the Gothic novels with which I'm playing, there were many novels with titles involving the word Abbey that came out between the time I began writing the book and the present moment. You had mentioned Benjamin Crosby, and I'm going to refer to him as the scoundrel Benjamin Crosby. Why in the world did this guy pay you for your book and then not put it out? Well, I would love to know the answer to that myself. I actually wrote him a few years ago, a very angry letter, hoping that I might persuade him to restore the manuscript to me. And I actually took on an alias. I wrote to him as Mrs. Ashford Dennis, and I claimed that I was accepting responsibility for having written this book, and I wanted to know why he had not yet published it. And one of the benefits of the alias is that I was able to sign myself, yours, etc., M-A-D. I signed it mad because I was very angry, Mrs. Ashton Dennis. <laughs> I do not actually know for sure. I do know that right after he bought the copyright from me, Unfortunately, he himself had some financial difficulties, and it's possible that he was unable to afford to do so. But I do wish that if that were the case, he would sell it back to me. But unfortunately, I don't currently have the £10 that it would take to repurchase the copyright. Although that seems ludicrous now in that Pride and Prejudice was actually sold to Mr. Thomas Edgerton, who is much more reliable, for £110, for which I'm most grateful. When you say that Benjamin Crosby bought that for £10... Give me some idea of what £10 is in your time. What else can you buy for £10? Oh, a great deal. If one is working as a governess in general, one's annual income might be about £25. And mind you, that is if you're a governess, your housing is taken care of and you're fed. But that's all that you're paid for the year for your own savings, to provide your clothing, charitable work, anything else that you might want to do. Certainly £10 would be a large amount for a labourer's salary, and it's a substantial amount of money. My mother and my sister and I and our friend Martha Lloyd now, who's come to live with us here in Chawton, since my father's death, between the four of us and our various legacies that we've managed to cobble together and the aid of my brothers, we're living on around, I'd say, about four to five hundred pounds a year. So ten is not a huge sum, but to me, when that's all I have every year for my entire family, it's substantial. I can definitely see that. That makes sense. So when you made contact with Benjamin Crosby, suggested via the writings of Mrs. Ashford Dennis, why would he, I'm a little confused, why would he respond to Mrs. Ashford Dennis 
and not from you? Why wouldn't you write the letter from you? Does he not know who you are? He did not indeed know who had written the novel. It actually, my father at the time, it was just before my brother Henry began helping me out as my agent. And between the two of them, they were working as my literary agent so that I would not have to deal with the business side of things, which really is not quite nice for a young clergyman's daughter to be doing. So all that he knew was that the novel was by a lady. And I have continued to publish my novels simply by a lady since then, although now that I have a few out in the world, for example, Pride and Prejudice was published by a lady, the author of Sense and Sensibility, and so on. Although, in truth, Brother Henry has become a little bit of um, a uncontrollable. And when people express their admiration for Pride and Prejudice in particular, he does not seem able to resist telling them that his sister wrote it. So I don't know for how long I will be able to keep my anonymity, but I am trying. So your brother's getting the word out. Now, does that make you feel in your time, does that make you feel uncomfortable? If people knew that it was you, is that a, does that create a problem for you? It does a little bit. I mean, it's not really uncommon for ladies to be writing and publishing, particularly those who have good reasons for needing a little extra income. I mean, obviously, we have Frances Burney and Mariah Edgeworth, who I admire enormously, and Radcliffe, and the Porter sisters are also selling these extraordinary historical novels. But there is still a little bit of a tarnish on one's reputation when one becomes a lady authoress. And I've never entirely wanted to be included in those circles. I was recently invited to a literary dinner where Madame de Stile was to be a guest. And everyone was quite shocked that I did not wish to meet her. But her reputation in particular, though she may be brilliant, her personal reputation is such that I did not think the daughter of a country clergyman, particularly the single daughter of a country clergyman, really ought to be mixing in such circles. So I'm just as happy for my novels and myself to be kept separate. So if you are completely happy being anonymous and nobody knowing that you wrote these books, what is the purpose of writing them? Because it it seems to me that when people write a book, they would write it because they want people to read it. But you must have some other intention if you could care less if people know it's you. So what is the purpose I, of writing the books at all? Well, I do indeed want people to read them. But at the risk of sounding wholly mercenary and incredibly unattractive, I must admit that one of the grand schemes is the making of money. After my father passed away, my mother, my sister and I were left essentially at our own devices. As soon as Papa died, we no longer received any income from the work that he'd been doing as a clergyman until he passed away. Because my brother Edward was his curate, we had still been receiving tithes and other things that allowed us to do things like have a roof over our head and purchase food and clothing. and enable us to keep up appearances, at least to look respectable, if not elegant. But once Papa died, we were at a loss. My mother had a little money from her family. My sister Cassandra had a small legacy that was left to her by a young man to whom she was engaged many years ago, who tragically passed away of yellow fever far away in the West Indies. I had absolutely nothing, and had my brothers not kindly stepped in, my brother Edward promised us £100 a year, and my brothers Henry and Frank and James each pledged £50 to help us. But had that not happened, we would have been left destitute. It's a situation not dissimilar to what I describe with the Dashwoods in Sense and Sensibility. And so it was very important to me that I find a way to contribute to our family finances. And I had enjoyed writing very much as a young girl and always sort of had dreams of being able to make 
my mark in the world as an authoress. So once it became incumbent upon me to help my family, it really lit a fire under me that I wanted to try to start to get published seriously. That makes sense. It appears that you are very close to your family and that all of the family had no intention of leaving anybody destitute and they did whatever they could to make sure that they could uh, fill the family pot to make sure that everybody was getting by uh, the best they could. I mean, is that how you would describe your family? Very much so. We're very close. The Austins, we always say that we're a very special group and we're very fond of each other. I fear I may be the only one who let the side down a little bit. You may be aware that in 1802, I did actually receive a proposal of marriage from Mr. Harris Bigwither. And at first, I accepted him because he was going to be the master of Manydown Park. He was a close family friend. His sisters, Catherine and Alethea, are dear friends of my sister Cassandra and I. And in many ways, it seemed a perfect situation. If I married a young man who was so respectable and worthy, I could have created security for my mother and my sister for the rest of their lives. And so I did say yes initially. Then overnight, I talked it over with Cassandra. I thought a great deal. And I realized that I could not give away my hand without the requisite affection for my intended lord and master. And the following morning, I had the very unenviable task of rescinding my acceptance of Harris's kind proposal. Cassandra and I left the house right away that morning. Catherine and Alethea took us back to Steventon in their carriage, which was most kind of them. And my brother James got us home to Bath from there. But it was a very distressing situation. But that also made me realize if I were unwilling to marry and create security for my family in that way, I would have to do something else to help my family. And I realized that one of the things that made me concerned about marriage was that once I married, took on the responsibilities of running a large household and probably having many children. The woman who Harris has subsequently married has had, I believe, nine or ten children. But wow. were that the case, I would not have been able to continue writing. So I made a choice. And after that, I really began in earnest pursuing publication. Was that a consideration that children would affect your ability to write more? Well, I must admit, I've always been a bit frightened of childbearing. Having grown up and you hear all of these horror stories of the women around me who were dying and becoming dreadfully ill and giving birth to between five and 15 children. And it just, it's always been something that to me has seemed a little bit horrifying. And I know that it's very much part of life. And were I not so young, I would have seen my mother go through, through many pregnancies and births. But being the age that I was, there were not many children born after me. I was one of the youngest. So I've watched my sisters-in-law and it's, it always looks a bit horrific. And it's not something that's ever drawn me. I want to say that my books are my children and they provide me with sufficient interest for happiness. So I would much prefer that sort of creation, I think, though I do know certainly that both are very valuable. What percentage of women in your time, if you had to guess, would die in childbirth? It's quite a high one. I don't know exactly. I believe I've heard it said one in five. But I know among my acquaintance, certainly my brother Edward's wife, only a few years ago, passed away during the birth of her 11th child, leaving behind her all her other children. And my poor niece, Fanny, who was 15 at the time, had to step into the breach right away and grow up enormously quickly because she had to raise the rest of her siblings after the death of her mother. And it's been incredibly difficult, although that's one situation in which Cassandra and I still being single has been of use, in that when members of the family pass away, she and I are able to step into the breach and help out as much as we're able. And certainly we spend a great deal of time with Edward's family at Godmersham. 
Although I do have some hopes that he may remarry at some point, but for now I know he and his children are all very much grieving. You've spoken many times already about Cassandra. Obviously you are as close as two people could be. When you initially were proposed to by uh, by Mr. Bigwither, Bigwither, is that what it is? Yes, indeed. Harris Bigwither. <laughs> Harris Bigwither. Did you and Cassandra sit down and practice saying Jane Bigwither? And maybe that was too much of a mouthful or <laughs> was that part of your decision? Well, indeed, I must admit that Harris is a very good kind of young man, but he's also rather awkward. And he's very kind and I'm sure he very means well, but he's he's very large and he's not terribly polished, and he's not always very polite. And I'm sure that none of it's intentional, I'm quite sure, but he does have a habit of speaking his mind in a way that makes everyone else in the room rather uncomfortable. And I feel that to be his wife, I would either have to start ignoring that, or I would have to constantly be apologizing for him. And neither one seems like a very easy way for me to pass a life. There would have been many douceurs in marrying Harris, but there also would have been a number of trials in coping with his character. There was one occasion, I recall, I was not there, but his sister Alethea told me about it, where he'd made a punch for a dinner of gentlemen he was hosting, and it was not very carefully done. He'd put in a number of different wines that did not blend terribly well. And when one of the gentlemen complained to Harris about it, his response was that the wines were very much like the gentlemen in the room. They were all fine on their own, but when put together in a large group, they were rather untasteful. <laughs> so I think he's rather wont to be a bit too blunt. And I am myself, but I try to keep my blunt comments confined to Cassandra in our own room. I try not to say them in public. <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh my gosh, what a great story. <laughs> what When the time came for you to tell Mr. Bigwither that the engagement was off. Was your family supporting that? I'm guessing Cassandra would have supported anything you would have done. But did your family support that? Did Was there a huge reaction from him? Well, the difficulty was that no one in my family really knew. Cassandra and I were staying with the Big Withers for the Christmas holiday that season. It was, I believe, it was December 2nd when he proposed. And we were there alone. So the rest of our family was back at home. My mother and father were in Bath, and my brother James and his family were at home in, in Steventon. And so no one actually knew he'd proposed and that I'd accepted except for Cassandra until we were taken back the next morning. And when we arrived on James's doorstep, because he was the closest family member, so that's where we went right away, I will admit that he and his wife Mary, who was the sister of my dear friend Martha Lloyd, but they were not at all pleased. Mary in particular was quite furious. She thought that it would have been an excellent match for me. I think she's always been a bit concerned at having a spinster sister-in-law. Cassandra has the benefit of having been engaged in the past. I have no such uh, <laughs> such qualification. So she, Mary and James were quite upset with me. My mother and father were more understanding. Uh, my father has always very kindly um, been most supportive of my literary aspirations, even though when I was a little girl, he did not allow me or Cassandra to study Greek or Latin or any of the things that he was teaching the young men. Once he realized how much I enjoyed writing as a young miss in her teens, he did for my 19th birthday actually give me a writing desk of my own, which I still use to this day. And I've always been very grateful for that vote of confidence from my father. So he's always been very kind and supportive of any decisions that I've made and supportive of wanting to pursue perhaps a literary career rather than a marriage. What an extraordinary man your father must be in, in your time to put the obvious traditions of, hey, you're 14 now, you need to go get married, and say, wait, let me listen to what you want and then support what you want. Did your mom feel the same way? Did she feel that way or did she just want you to get married? 
My mother was perhaps more concerned. I think she did try very hard to marry me and Cassandra off. When we first made our debut in the 1790s, we both traveled all over the country in sort of in hopes that somewhere we would meet someone. We stayed with our cousins, the Lee Parrots, in baths and went to assemblies and we went to balls in Basingstoke and we stayed with friends in London. But I fear that my one, well, one of my attachments of note ended unhappily in that the young man was a rising barrister in London. His name was Tom Lefroy. He was Irish. And he was a nephew of my dear friend, Madame Lefroy, who ne lived near to us in Steventon. She was in the rectory at Ash, not far away. And Tom came to visit one summer, I believe it was in 1796. And we quickly gave calls for our names to be much coupled in gossip. Imagine, if you can, everything the most shocking in sitting down and dancing dances together in sequence, not talking to other people. Everyone was horrified. But unfortunately, though he and I were quite sanguine about our relationship, the older generation was less so, and they did not think that the daughter of a country clergyman was a suitable match for a rising London barrister. And shortly after a ball at Ash, at which I had informed Cassandra I was expecting an offer from my friend in the course of the evening, he was actually sent away. And in less than a year, he'd married another much more suitable young woman in Ireland. Although I have been told that they named their first daughter Jane. And I certainly would not claim to be the inspiration for that, but it has always intrigued me. Did you love Tom? I think so, but it was a girlish sort of love. I was very fond of him. He was very charming, and I enjoyed his company enormously. But I was also very young. I had only just come out, and I had not much experience of the world yet. So though it did seem very enticing at the time, perhaps well, in the end it was all for the best. <laughs> At the time, when you say you were very young, when you met Tom Lafroy, that you would have been about 19. Does that sound about right? Yes, exactly. And at 19, when you say you were very young, the average 19-year-old, and this is a total guess, has already been married for five years and has three kids. Am, am I far off on that? It depends, honestly, on your social station, really. It does seem that sort of in the upper classes, people do tend to marry quite young. In the middling sort where I find myself these days, <laughs> it varies. And often, most ladies I'm finding of my acquaintance are marrying between 21 and 24. So that's sort of the years when their parents consider they have come to age of discretion and are able to make these decisions for themselves. Although, that said, my niece Anna has justified her parents and with great fanfare and drama married a young man at the, the age of 17. She is 17, he's 30 years old. I don't know quite what to think about it. but So it certainly does happen, as you say, that young ladies marry at that age. But it's not as common as one might think. How old was Tom at the time? Tom was just a bit older than I. I think he was around 24, so not much older. Of the two of us, he certainly is the one who ought to have known better. Okay. <laughs> Let me paint a different scenario. And I want you to imagine for a minute that when you had met Tom, you're 19 and he is 25 or 24. He's five years older than you. And instead of being a man who's working towards being a barrister and not really having the finances to provide for a family and a wife, instead, I want you to imagine that he had come from a very wealthy family, one of the wealthiest families. And money was not going to be an issue at any point throughout your life. Would he have been somebody that you would have pursued? You know, it's an excellent question. And it's always one of these questions that young ladies really have to ponder. Is 
to what extent the young man they're forbidden to marry is more attractive because he's forbidden. Entry not to keep coming back to Anna, but just because it's occurred so recently, actually before her recent marriage, which was to Lefroy, by the way, but she actually had an entanglement with another young man to whom she'd become engaged about, I think, 15 or 16. And her parents had told her, no, she could absolutely not marry him. She had insisted. She had won the day. She finally had gotten permission to marry him. And at that point, she changed her mind. And I don't know. I can't say it's impossible to look back and know for certain whether... Had everyone been happy about it, I would have said, absolutely, I shall marry Tom and give up all thoughts of writing. Although he might have been more supportive of that than would Harris. I will say, however, most of the married female novelists of my generation have been novelists before their marriage rather than becoming published afterward. And I don't know how much gentlemen are willing to support a wife who wants to take her own time to work versus being willing to marry a lady who's already celebrated. That too might be a difficulty. Well, and the reason that I ask that, because from my understanding of the information we have in our time, that you were very fond of Tom and he had similar feelings for you and it just didn't work out. And the stumbling block was that there was no way that the two of you could support a family together because neither of you had any real income. And it seems that that element of life finds its way into a lot of your novels, whether or not this person is suitable to marry based on what he can provide, even though I think most people would want to marry for love first, which you may have had for Tom, but sometimes it doesn't matter because if there's no way to support the family, love doesn't pay the bills. What are your thoughts on that? And it is one of the great questions, I think. Really, this idea that we now have of marriage being based on romantic love is quite a recent one and really does come from the fact, honestly, that so many more ladies are writing novels these days. And I don't know whether it is a recipe for happiness to marry without money. I mean, it's a similar question people always ask me about Marianne Dashwood, Mr. Willoughby, and Colonel Brandon. And the question is, Willoughby did, conceivably, want to propose to Marianne before he found out that he was disinherited because his entanglement with Eliza had been discovered. But, yes, I do believe, and I wrote it this way, that Willoughby and Marianne were very much in love. But I don't necessarily believe that had they married with no money, they would have had a very happy life. I certainly, myself, am aware, partly from my own experience and partly from what I've seen, of the privations of trying to scrimp and save and make ends meet, and it's difficult. And those who have said to me that they think that her marrying Colonel Brandon is not the happiest ending, I have to disagree because she's marrying a man who can look after her, provide her with a safe and comfortable life, and who does love her even if it's not the wild passion of youth. And I think one of the things I explore in my novels is this balance between being wildly in love, or as Charlotte Collins says, needing a comfortable home. And I know that Charlotte is also one of my more divisive characters and that people wonder how she could possibly marry Mr. Collins. But I certainly don't blame her for it, though it's not a choice that I would make, clearly, nor one that Elizabeth Bennett would make. It's one that's very rational. Do you feel like throughout your life that 
you were forced to scrimp and save? Have you spent a decent amount of your life in what you would call poverty? Have you found yourself in wealth? What was what does your life look like? I would certainly never say that I was poor. I've had to be very careful with money, partly because the position in which the family of a country clergyman finds oneself is having to look as though one is a member of the gentry, but not having the resources to adequately dress oneself to be able to afford a carriage and horses. So it's more of the world in which we wanted to be seen to live was a stretch for our actual income. And within my brothers, it's been interesting to see sort of the variety of life experience that can come. My brother Edward, as you may know, was adopted as a very young man by our cousins, Mr. Thomas Knight and his wife of Godmersham Park in Kent. And they were childless, and having taken a fancy to Edward, he actually accompanied them on their wedding tour. They proposed that they should adopt Edward and bring him up so that he could be the heir to their estates in Kent and in Hampshire. So my brother Edward has actually inherited three estates. He has Godmersham Park, he has Chawton House, among others. And he is a very wealthy gentleman who's probably more equivalent to what people imagine for Mr Bingley or Mr Darcy. On the other end of the scale, until quite recently, my naval brothers had a bit of a struggle. And for a long time, Frank's wife, Mary, actually lived with my mother, Cassandra, Martha Lloyd and I, the five of us, shared a house in Southampton because none of us could have afforded to live on our own. But if we put the income of these five ladies together, we could make shift to look fairly genteel. And then also my brother Charles, his wife Fanny actually, travelled with him at sea and even once they had a daughter because they could not afford to have a home on shore unless they added two more ladies to our house of already five ladies. <laughs> actually, ten ladies if you include the servants. But you know, Fanny lived with Charles on his ship until quite recently. And Brother Henry is always in and out <laughs> of being in a secure position. He was for a while in the militia, then he became a banker, did quite well as a banker until the end of the war and the end of the robust wartime economy. And he's had more difficulties since. So Henry is now contemplating going back and becoming a clergyman. So none of us have ever actually been in danger of not having the necessities of life. But nothing has ever been simple for us. I will put it that way. It's never just been easy. Exactly. You had mentioned carriages and horses. And as I'm reading, the talk of carriages and horses come up often. Are carriages very expensive in your time? Oh, they are. And depending what kind you drive, how many horses you have, how many servants you have attending your carriage, all of this says a great deal on first glance about your station in life and what the size of your fortune may well be. So yes, having an, a carriage is certainly a large mark of prosperity, shall we say. Certainly for me, I've recently been going up to London much more frequently to look after the publication of my books. And I'm always traveling by what we call the flyer, which is the stagecoach that goes from Southampton, stops by my house in Chawton and goes on up to London. But it's a great treat for me when one of my brothers, who is a little bit more prosperous, is traveling in that direction and is able to give me a ride in his own carriage because it's much more comfortable. You're not either being stuffed into the stagecoach with six other people, or even worse, being sat on the top of the stagecoach where you're at the mercy of all of the elements as you ride along. That's the worst place when you're actually on top of it and you're subject to the weather. Oh, it is. It's not at all pleasant, especially when you're all cramped in there already and then it begins to rain on you. It is not an experience that you want to have. <laughs> 
Let's talk about where you are right now. You just mentioned that you are very close to publishing Emma. Is that yes, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, Emma has just come out into the world on the 23rd of December here in the year 18 and 15. And with something that I am told will help his sales, but I'm still a bit ambivalent about, which is a dedication to His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent. How did that come about? Is the Prince Regent somebody that you respect and care about? Well, my family has a long history with His Royal Highness in that he did have a hunting lodge not far from where I grew up in Steventon. But unfortunately, that being the case, his various sundry mistresses and other entanglements were much the subject of country gossip. And I have never been a particular admirer of his. And particularly then when a few years later, my brother Frank was actually part of the naval squadron that was sent to bring his new bride to England for the wedding. And everyone on board ship was completely charmed by Princess Caroline. We're all greatly in admiration of her. And really, the Prince Regent has treated her abominably. And I am joined by, I think, most of the women of England in being firmly on her side against him. However, that said, I had been up in London recently attending to my brother Henry, who has been quite ill. Sadly, his wife Eliza passed away a few years ago, and so I frequently come up both to look at my books and also to sort of keep house for Henry and look after him. And Henry's doctor happens to also be the doctor for His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent. And Henry, as I mentioned earlier, is very proud of my having written these successful novels. <laughs> so when the doctor mentioned to him that His Royal Highness was a great admirer of Pride and Prejudice, Henry instantly said, my sister wrote it. Ah, and thereby hangs a tale. So once the Prince Regent discovered this, he had his librarian, the Reverend Mr. Clark, pay a call upon me at my brother's Henry House in London. And the Reverend Mr. Clark invited me to visit Carlton House, which is His Royal Highness London residence. And upon my visit to the house and my viewing of the library with the Reverend Mr. Clark, who is quite a character, I can tell you more at length later if you're interested. But one of the things that I was told is that I was at liberty to dedicate my future work to His Royal Highness. Now, when I first left Carlton House, I had no intention of dedicating my future work to the Prince Regent, but I discovered upon talking with Henry and several other friends in London that this was not actually a suggestion. It was a royal command. <laughs> so it has turned out that I have indeed dedicated my little book to His Royal Highness. It wasn't a choice, and you just had to overlook the fact that he was a womanizer and didn't treat Carolyn very well. No, not at all. And yes, he's quite a libertine, and honestly, I must say, Carlton House is extraordinary. So it was designed on a scale to mimic sort of the French Palace of Versailles, but inside, unfortunately for His Royal Highness, he broke with his initial architect, who was designing it very elegantly, and he's put in more of his own taste. And when I arrived, they had just changed the pink satin drawing room to be a blue satin drawing room. And the whole thing is really quite overwhelming and not at all to the taste, I think, of a normal Englishwoman. Speaking of Versailles, I'm going to go a different direction here right now. Since you had said that you've never left England, then you've never been to Versailles, correct? I have not, no. My cousin Eliza has, actually. And she has written to me some fascinating descriptions of Queen Marie Antoinette's clothing. And this is the reason that I ask, because... When you do write, I've been to Versailles, and I know how extraordinary it is. And as I listen to you describe the beauty of it and what you write, it appears that you have been to a lot of places that you haven't been to. And I was going to ask you about Eliza, because 
some of that comes from her, doesn't it? Oh, it does indeed. Cousin Eliza is absolutely extraordinary. She was actually born in India. Her father at the time, Tyso Hancock, was working as an army surgeon there, and so she was born there. And luckily for her, the Governor-General took a great fancy to her and to her mother, Warren Hastings, and he made her his goddaughter and has actually provided for her quite well and paid for her to have an excellent education. So she was a young girl in India, came back as a teenager with her mother to England, and then in 1777 they settled on the continent. And Eliza was caught up in this extraordinary world that was French society before the revolution. She really has had quite an unfortunate adventure, however, in that she fell very much in love with and married a young man named Jean-Foy de Foyide, who was a, a captain of dragoons in actually the regiment of Queen Marie Antoinette. And they lived very happily at his estates for a while. He was given great favours by the Queen and the King. But then, of course, as several years ago, revolution exploded across the Channel and grew increasingly violent and untenable. So Eliza fled back to England. Her husband came to England for some time but was uneasy about leaving his property unattended. And I'm afraid ill-advisedly went back to France, where he was arrested by the Committee of Public Safety and was actually sent to the guillotine. So through Cousin Eliza and her stories, I have certainly learned a great deal about the realities of the world across the sea that I would not otherwise be aware of, I'm quite sure. She's so well-traveled, sounds so interesting. I have to imagine that when you are sitting next to her having a cup of tea that you're just all ears listening to her. Oh, she's quite remarkable. And she actually, in, in her younger days, was responsible for what we used to call the Steventon Theatricals. When I was a little girl and my father was the rector at Steventon and Eliza would come to stay with us in the summers, she recruited me and my brothers, and sometimes Cassandra when she was willing, to aid her in the performance of amateur theatricals. So we turned one of the rectory outbuildings into a theatre and we put on productions of Sheridan's The Rivals and Susan Saltlever's The Wonder a Woman Keeps a Secret and all sorts of exciting plays. And Eliza always played the role of leading lady with great joie de vivre and with perilous charm. And I do think it was then actually, well, two of my brothers at the time fell in love with her. Both my brother James, who was writing prologues, especially for Eliza to open all of her performances. But also my brother Henry, who did later become her second husband. I'm quite sure that it was during their performances on stage opposite each other that their romance first began. If the opportunity had presented itself and Eliza and, and she was married to Henry, correct? Exactly, yes. Okay. If Eliza and Henry had said, hey, we're going to travel to France or we're going to travel over the sea, would you have hesitated to go if the opportunity had presented itself? Oh, I would have loved to. It's one of the things I know that my naval brothers had such a difficult time on the open seas, but I often told them that their professions had its due sirs to make up for those privations and that they were able to see the world. The difficulty was that I hate to keep talking about something as vulgar as money, but Travelling even from Chawton to London is a great expense for our family. And so for me to think of travelling beyond the bounds of the country really was out of the question. Although Henry and Eliza actually did go back to France shortly after they were first married, hoping in the wake of the revolution, once Bonaparte had taken over control of the country, that they might be able to reclaim some of her first husband's estates. And unfortunately for them, they were still in Paris when I think it was in 1802, Napoleon revoked the tenuous peace between France and England, 
and all English terrorists were unable to leave the country. And they would have been in a terrible fix were it not that Eliza always had a plan. She put Henry, whose French was never quite what it ought to have been, in the back of the carriage in the guise of an invalid, claiming that he was feverish and could not speak, and that she was his wife, and so she, with her perfect French, was able to pass them off as a Parisian couple, get out of the city gates, and they were able to return safely home to England. But he's very lucky that, that she spoke French so beautifully, because he did not pay enough attention to his languages in school. I have a regret that I never got to meet Eliza. She sounds wonderful. Absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, I have been known to say that there are many elements of Eliza in Elizabeth Bennet. Also, I must admit, though she was not as keen on this, there is a bit of her in, in, in Mary Crawford in Mansfield Park. And certainly, she and her brother Henry in that book, starting the theatricals at Mansfield Park. I did draw a great deal on our Steventon theatricals when I was a young girl. Ah, that's great. So, all right, so let me ask you about your books. Okay, so mm. you have... Up to this point, I know you've done a lot of writing prior to the books that you have published, but up until this moment, you have published, it, tell me if I've got this right, you've published Sense and Sensibility, and you've published Pride and Prejudice, and Mansfield Park, and then today is Emma. Yes, indeed. Tell me, all of which, except for when Henry's telling everybody that it's you, nobody knows it's you, which is just blowing my mind. Like, I can't believe that. So how many books have been sold during this time? Do you have any numbers on that? So it's varied. I remember, because it was my first, obviously, I was very excited about all of the minute details. With Sense and Sensibility, I did sell out the first run, which was 750 copies. We did a second edition in 18 and 13 that did not sell out, unfortunately. Pride and Prejudice did very well. But unfortunately, with Pride and Prejudice, I did not make a wise business decision. So... Sense and Sensibility, I published what we call on commission, meaning that essentially I was publishing it at, at my own risk. So had it not sold well, I would have taken, well, Henry, who was actually helping, would have taken the financial burden upon himself. But because it did sell quite well, I was able to make some money. With Pride and Prejudice, it worked out differently in that I actually sold the copyright to Mr. Edgerton, as I mentioned, for £110. And he did end up selling out first, second, and third editions. But unfortunately, I saw no remuneration for the second or third editions because by that time, Mr. Edgerton owned the copyright, and so all of the proceeds went to him. Mansfield Park worked out rather differently. The first edition did sell quite well, but he did not advertise the second edition as well as I thought he might. And that's what has prompted me for Emma to reach out to Mr. John Murray, who is... A publisher perhaps more versed in selling and advertising literary works. Mr. Edgerton was recommended to me by Henry, who knew him from his army days, and he does largely publish works that have to do with the military and military history. So really, Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice are rather aberrations in his catalogue. Whereas Mr. Murray is a publisher for people like Sir Walter Scott and other well-known literary figures. So I have high hopes that Mr. Murray, who is now going to do for me another edition of Mansfield Park, in addition to this recent publication of Emma, I have high hopes that these sales may go well. I do very much hope so. I'm doing these once again on commission in hopes that, that I will see a little bit of more of a result myself. <laughs> so when you do this on commission, the way that works is that there is substantial risk for you because if they don't sell, you're on the hook for the money that was lost. Is that correct? 
Exactly. So I'm paying for the printing, the paper, the ink. And so if it goes well, I get reimbursed. If it does not go well, then I'm essentially out of luck. The other option for publishing these days is one that has been used, actually, Mrs. Burney used it when she published Camilla, which is that you can publish things on subscription. So you send around something saying when this book comes out, you have people sign up, say that they will definitely buy it. And so these subscribers to your novel are actually, in the end, paying for its publication. But really, you have to be quite a well-known author for that to actually work or have very influential and well-to-do friends. So it's something that I've never tried. But it has seemed thus far that though selling the copyright is certainly the simplest thing, selling my novels on commission is actually a much wiser business decision, which I've discovered with great help from Henry. It's, it's really quite useful to have a banker brother, I must admit. <laughs> Most definitely. It's great that you have somebody that's, that is so helpful. I mean, in your life, you have Henry, who it sounds like would do anything to help you, and Cassandra, that is the, the sage that gives you advice when you're not 100% sure which direction to go. Yes, and really, I must admit, when anyone asks me, Cassandra is absolutely the reason that I am able to write. Most single women in my position would not have the time or leisure to focus on their writing because the business of running a household is so all-consuming. But the way we have things sorted in our little life in Chawton, as I mentioned, there are the four of us living together, my mother, Cassandra, our friend Martha Lloyd, and me. And I get up early in the morning and I practice the pianoforte before anyone else is up so that I can have the parlor to myself. Then my job for the day is that I make breakfast. I hold the keys to the tea, the sugar, and, of course, the wine, which is one of my favorite things. So I take care of breakfast. But after breakfast, Cassandra and Martha take care of the rest of the household work for the day. So at that point in the day, I can spend the rest of my time on writing. And if I did not have this wonderful, supportive group of women who enable me to make this a profession, I certainly would not be able to do it. Thank God those people were there. I want to go back for a moment. I want to go back to the numbers of books that were sold. So 750 copies of the first edition and the second did not sell out on Sense and Sensibility. So maybe a thousand copies, something like that. Just a rough guess. Probably, yes. But then Pride and Prejudice, when you say the first, second, and third all sold out, which unfortunately you didn't get money for the second and third editions, do you know how many were in the first, second, and third editions roughly? I believe, and I may be fudging the numbers a little bit, I can't quite remember, but I believe the first edition was somewhere in the region of 1,000 to 1,500. So it was more than Sense and Sensibility just because that one had done quite well. So he took more of a risk of Pride and Prejudice. So probably for the three editions, we're talking about something between 3,000 and 4,000 novels or copies. Okay, three to 4,000 total. Mm-hmm. Then Mansfield Park, any guess how many of that sold? That's probably around 1,000 again, nothing terribly grand. And, of course, uh, Henry's going house by house, person by person, telling them that you wrote it, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Any party will, someone will listen. I love Henry, too. So, and then the one, Emma, what you're working on right now, well, Emma's not out yet. Are they anticipating any numbers for Emma right now? They're anticipating, with wild optimism, very good sales because of the name of His Royal Highness being emblazoned on the frontispiece. <laughs> so we shall see. I mean, in my mind, it would deter me from buying a work, but perhaps I am not the common consumer. So they're hoping that will be very great. I'm slightly concerned that Mr. Murray, though I know that he knows what he's doing, he's very charming, very well informed, 
But he's bringing out the second edition of Mansfield Park and this first edition of Emma very close to each other. And I'm a bit worried that if the two are in competition, neither one will do as well as it might on its own. But that remains to be seen this spring, I fear. That's interesting. I would feel the exact opposite of that. I, I would feel in our time that if Mansfield Park, if people read that and then they liked it, they would immediately want to go to the next one. And the sooner that was available, the better. Well, I um, shall hope that you were correct. I like that view <laughs> very much. So it's funny that you said that His Royal Highness's name on the cover means that it might do better. It would be so, it would be fascinating if that was your best-selling book and that one sold 10,000 copies, first, second, third, fourth, fifth editions. And it was all because of a man that you really don't have a lot of respect for because he's a womanizer and treats people poorly. It'd be interesting if, yet that was what sold the most of your books, wouldn't it? It would be rather funny. And it's an interesting contrast in that actually with Emma, I rather challenged myself. I created a heroine who I believe no one but myself will much like. And so I shall be very curious to see how the world at large reacts to Emma because she is quite sure of herself and she's a very handsome but not terribly sensible young woman and really the exact opposite of Fanny Price in Mansfield Park, actually. So I'll be curious to see how the world responds to her. I want to ask you about Emma. And but before I ask you about Emma, I'm going to tell you something right now because as I'm doing the math on this, it appears to me that you've written these books and people are reading them and they love them. And Henry is telling everybody that you wrote them and he's telling them because he's proud. He wouldn't be saying that if they were awful. And it appears to me that there's been maybe four, five, maybe 6,000 copies that have been sold, that, give or take. And with 6,000 copies, you're going to make some money, but it's not so much money that you can support your family for the rest of your life, correct? Like you need to keep, no. keep writing books and keep figuring out where money comes from, correct? Exactly. It's going to be a constant. But fortunately, I do have ideas for future works. I've actually started recently at work on a novel that at the moment I'm calling The Elliots, although I'm not quite sure I'm satisfied with that title. But it is my first to actually have a naval captain as its hero. So I'm getting much advice from both Frank and from Charles. But certainly this is a state in which I'm never going to be able to really sit on my laurels and enjoy the money flowing in from book sales. I'm going to have to continue writing to make this really work. Also, because honestly, though many people are buying books, also the lending libraries are incredibly popular. So many people are reading my books by taking them out of the lending libraries, which means that the library purchased a copy of my book, but that even if 500 people read it from that library, it's not necessarily of great help to me, except that I'm most pleased that they're reading my books and meeting my characters. But aside from that, it's not terribly useful. I'm going to break precedent because I have these conversations with people in history like yourself frequently. And I'm going to break precedent right now because, but when I tell you this, I'm going to tell you this, and then I want you to never tell anybody what I'm going to tell you right now. And I would even prefer if you forgot it after we discussed it. So, would you, if I tell you something, would you make an attempt to never tell anybody what I'm going to tell you right now, and even maybe forget it if possible? I shall do my best. I can't promise never to tell Cassandra, but otherwise I shall do my best. Well, then you'll have to have her make the same promise. Does that sound fair? Yes, indeed, it does. <laughs> okay, all right. So there are 6,000 copies of your books, roughly, that have been sold, and I hope Emma sells many copies. Thank you. In, in our time, one a single copy 
one single first edition original copy of, I believe it was Sense and Sensibility, but it might have been Pride and Prejudice, sold for 375,000 pounds. And you've had now over 3 million copies of your books sold in our time. That is absolutely staggering. Why do you think people love your work so much? I've always said that I write plain, simple, unpretentious stories. I proclaim frequently that I could not sit down seriously to write a serious romance without relaxing into laughing at myself or other people. First, let me clear something up. I made a mistake when mentioning to Jane how many books had been sold. I said 3 million when the number is actually 30 million. Who knows how many would have been sold had she been able to live past the age of 41. After her death, Northanger Abbey was published. Also, the book she mentioned called The Elliots, which became Persuasion. In the next episode, you'll hear what Jane removed from Pride and Prejudice because it was offending her readers. You'll learn why women are called relics once they are widowed, and you'll learn about the day that Jane almost lost all of her partially written manuscripts forever. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with Jane Austen Part 2. 